Good morning. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Acts chapter 14. We'll be there. That should be on page 923, if you have a pew Bible in front of you. Luke chapter, uh, Luke, Luke wrote it. Acts is the book we're in, in the 14th chapter this morning. I'd like to ask us a question as we get started this morning that kind of, in my estimation, encapsulates the entire passage. What is driving your life? What are you living for? A year or two ago, I ran into a high school friend who married a pastor, and she and I were talking for a little while. We were sharing different aspects of ministry life and challenges and struggles, and she said, sometimes when I talk to my husband about something, he just looks at me and says, what what do you really want? And she didn't say that like he was some sort of top-down dictator, but just trying to really get down to the core what's happening in, in your heart, in your life. That's a good question for my wife to ask me. <laughs> That's a good question for all of us. What, what is it we're really going for? Candidly, as our service opened today, we all need to ask the, a question, something like that, fairly regularly because we have eyes that see physical things and we live in a physical world, which is beautiful that God's given to us, but it often we stray towards the temporal and away from the eternal or the spiritual. Think with me about things that drive people. We easily go to something like an athlete training for a marathon or for Olympic competition and the things that they will pursue and the things they will abstain from to accomplish that. We think, and perhaps all of you uh, are, are at least familiar, some perhaps do a deep dive into something like Navy SEAL training, where these guys want to become an elite soldier so they will endure all kinds of physical struggle and difficulty, even being taunted or coerced into just ring the bell and it all be done. You don't have to go any further. And as their trainers try to get them to crack and cop out, but they're driven for something. What is driving our lives? A few weeks ago, early on, one of the passages that was presented here was the passage regarding Paul's conversion. In Acts chapter 9, we find Saul, who is actively pursuing persecution of Christians because in his way of thinking and what he was striving for was to attain favor status or an entrance into favor with Judaism, the religious system of the day. And God met him on the road to Damascus and something changed. And a man who had made his life's work to destroy the Christian gospel starts saying this or says this, what will you have me do? Something significantly changed in his priority structure and it became the core of his life to be driven by this truth, the gospel message. And in the few verses today that we have, the 20 here, I think the overarching theme is a gospel-driven life. A life driven by evangelism, 
by sharing the good news. And I would just candidly say that this can easily come off, but we can always say, oh no, I'm supposed to witness more today. Oh no, I've got to be exactly like Paul. Oh no. And I would say no to that. I would say God has equipped us differently, wired us differently, but given us that central truth that we are to work out as intensely as Paul in the very avenues of life that you've been given. And so while we talk and we look at what Paul was doing here, may God help us to capture the intensity and tenacity and allow it to be fleshed out in your job, in your home, in your neighborhood, with your skill set for God's glory. Paul says at one point in Galatians chapter 2 that his testimony is this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's something to be driven by. That's something that kind of helps us navigate all the twists and turns of life. So perhaps today, as you think about what's driving your life, have we even come to an understanding that it is a Christian understanding of the world and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that connects all the dots of all the other things that desire to control or direct your life? It is a pursuit of the truth through the gospel that helps connect your academic interests and your hobby interests and your skill set and your opportunities and where you want to go with your life. It is God who gives you the ultimate and everything else thrown in. And it only makes sense if you have a drive or a focus or a goal that it can encapsulate and put everything else in its proper perspective. And so I'm just going to look at his adventure here. As you see in the bulletin, it's Iconium to Lystra to Derby, And we're going to follow that geographic pattern with just two points today, looking at the event that happened in Iconium and secondly, then in Lystra. And we're going to look at three different themes that come underneath each of these. The first being Paul's commitment to gospel proclamation. The second is the, the variety of the, the responses, the audience's response. And the third is the gospel commitment. And while these kind of overlap in the narrative, those will be the three things that we kind of look at as we see what God has for us, as we analyze what is driving our lives, and I trust God will help us and improve us through this time. So first, in the first six verses, let's look at Paul and Barnabas' ministry at Iconium. Read with me this morning, Acts 14, verse 1. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when the attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. So let's look, first of all, here at the gospel proclamation happening in Iconium. Notice with we, we see them moving right into the synagogue. This seems to be a pattern that kind of comes up over and over again. And as was mentioned last week in the sermon, 
This was that Paul, as a Jewish man, obviously loved his own people, and he didn't want to forget them, even though he was concerned for the nation. So he would make his way to the synagogue, obviously in a, in a pattern here. And I, it was interesting to me as I looked at this first verse, I noted this. It said he spoke in such a way. And just for a minute, I would like us to consider this morning when we proclaim the gospel, we too ought to consider speaking in such a way that many would believe. I think there are some caricatures out there, and I would suggest that perhaps really big billboards with flaming statements about what you need to do right now may not always work. I suppose I can't judge. Maybe it is the very thing that grabs somebody's attention and makes them think about things that are eternal. But I wonder sometimes if we have a very blunt, transactional, I've got something to say and you need to hear it right now, approach to talking to people about Jesus and the gospel, I think we might need to reconsider. We live in a culture that is transactional all the time, talking and interacting with people to get something or give something. We are sales pitched out. There's too many things coming all the time. Somebody's got a hook. I want to talk to you about this. I had a guy on my porch on Friday night trying to do pest control for my house. And um, I said, no, the snakes take care of the mice for me. I'm good. But I'm wondering, and he's doing his job, but we have an aversion to somebody showing up and selling us something else. I don't want to hear from somebody. I wonder if part of this, speaking in such a way, is an awareness of the culture and religion presented by Jews and Greeks and of the situation and of an interesting of an interest in listening to even what they believe as you know how to make perhaps a gospel corrective to that i just find that interesting it's not a formula if we speak in such a way that automatically many people will believe but i find that instructive to me that perhaps in my humanness when i hear a message like this there might be something oh no i got to tell people about jesus that is that that is a proper conclusion. We ought to share the gospel. But we can do it in such a way, in such a way, I think, that can be helpful to people coming to faith in Christ. A third thing in the gospel proclamation here, just is that the ministry, as I mentioned a second ago, was to Jews and Gentiles, meaning Paul had an awareness of cross-cultural things. And I'll just leave it at that. He knew perhaps how to speak to the religion of Jews. He Perhaps these also were Gentiles in the synagogue that were proselytes. They were coming to faith. But they're also Greek. They're coming at it from a different orientation. And he knew how to speak the truth in such a way that it was effective. So what happens then as the audience responds? You've, you've read the story. You're familiar with it before. We see right away many Jews and Gentiles believed. It says a great number. That's a wonderful thing to see, right? And we rejoice in that. And we ought to be mindful that this is the gospel that does this. While maybe your interaction and gospel proclamation doesn't always yield fruit, the gospel message itself is alive and real and does bring fruit as it is being declared throughout the world. At the same time, there was plenty of rejection. And you see the Jews here are those that would have the religious structure and power and authority, this would be a threat to how things are supposed to happen. This is a change in belief. This would be loss of power, loss of influence. Um, And so they turn the people against them and they devise plans to harm Paul and Barnabas. So what is the response to that? 
And the gospel commitment following that is Paul and Barnabas continued a long time proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't say exactly what that means, but the point was there are times when things go awry and it's difficult and you'll be maligned and mistreated and things don't go real well. And the solution in those situations is stay there, be winsome, be kind, keep moving. But God wants you, there are people believing and they need to hear the truth and listen to the truth. And so they continued there a long time. And you know what's interesting to me as well in here? It says that the Lord was observing all this. They, they were there for a long time in verse 3, speaking boldly for who? The Lord, not for themselves, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. We see this pattern in the early life of the church that they would confirm this message that was new, that God would often allow a miraculous event to occur to confirm that this is not just another religion that we're selling. It's just not a philosophy. This has divine stamp of even miracle upon it. They continue a long time. They conf- it was confirmed by the Lord. We see the city is divided. The go- a commitment to the gospel is a commitment to the truth, and truth inherently will bring a division. It'll be- become, hopefully, not an angry one based on how we do it, but it'll be those who believe versus those who don't believe. And here we see in the passage that the city divides. Some believe and some do not believe. And what happens then, the intensity and the plans come even further here for them to be mistreated, to be stoned. And when Paul and Barnabas learn of this, they change their ministry location. Because there is a time when your ministry is not received and when it's hostile, okay, move on to the next situation. Somebody else is needing to hear the word. There was a a godly man who is now with the Lord in my dad's church in New England Uh, who often encouraged me and would stay in touch even as we ministered in Chicago. From time to time, I'd be back at Dad's church, and he's a lifetime uh, salesman in Windows. And a huge heart to reach people group uh, that was in the area, the Hmong people who didn't have status, uh, didn't have a lot of things, and he'd help them with citizenship. Just It was his mission. He would bring 50, 100 of these people into the church, children's programs, just, just a missionary at heart. And just a kind and gentle man. And he'd say, you know, Daryl, when you're sharing the gospel, you know, you have maybe you sounds like when you preached, it was a rough situation. It didn't work out. He goes, you know, in sales, every time I lose a sale, I just think, well, I'm closer to gaining a sale and I'm just going to keep going. And he was taking that approach simply not to say, I'm in it for me. But it's also a little bit of a, a, a little bit of an appropriate twist. I lost one, but I'm closer to the one that God wants me to win. And that kind of perspective that when something goes wrong, I might have to change ministry location. I might need to change the person. They obviously know I'm irritating them or they're irritated by the message. Then I just move to the next one. God's redirecting directing me to somebody who needs to hear the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas were not stuck in one place saying, I have to stay here because God called me here and I won't leave no matter what. It got a little too hot and there's no harm in them moving on to the next place. There's your ministry, and they're at Iconium. And we see early on, this was not easy for Paul. Something bigger than success, something bigger than popularity, something bigger than occupation or acceptance was driving what he did because he stayed under pressure, and it was a life driven by a change that he experienced in the gospel. 
Paul and Barnabas demonstrate in Iconium a gospel-driven life. So what happens when you have to change location? You're tempted to throw in the towel. Never going to do that again. It was too rough. Maybe it's me. Maybe something else is wrong. I'm not going to do that. How interesting that Paul and Barnabas, it says, when they learned of the problems in verse 6, they fled to Lystra and Derby, city of Lyconia, and the surrounding country. And verse 7 brings us to our next thing. And there they continue to preach the gospel. This is what he does. And Paul is patterning for you and me that wherever we're at, followers of Jesus do this. They preach, proclaim, they live the gospel. He's driven by this regardless of location. It's not an on-off switch. It's not a Sunday on, Monday off switch. It's just, this is what I do. This is who I am. I preach the gospel. I'm driven by it. So now in verses 7 through 20, we see Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. And follow along with me now as we pick it up in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycanian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, who, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowds, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered into the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse, right? Here they come. He's in this next location, and we're going to see him the same, the same pattern. The first thing he's done is proclaiming the gospel. It says in verse 7, there they continue to preach the gospel. This is why it's so important, too, is when we're saying this, we need to preach the gospel to those who don't, haven't heard, but we have to often preach it to ourselves as well and to those around us. This is good news. This is what helps shape us. This is why it is important to read an assurance of the gospel in a service. We're reminding ourselves that God is right and has never done wrong. He's holy. We're reminding ourselves that we are not right, that we have sinned and fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We're reminded that Christ is the way for us to enter into fellowship with God again. And he calls us to repent and believe the gospel, this good news. Paul and Barnabas continue to preach the gospel. And I see here the story of the lame man as a beautiful illustration of a gospel conversion. 
Here we, here we go, and I just read it for you. A man who's crippled from birth. Other times when you see people in other stories of the gospel, maybe something had happened to them. Not sure if it's always been this way. But in this case, this man had never walked. And if, by way of illustration, I could just take it this way. Before you come to Christ, you have never walked spiritually. You've never been alive. You're more than crippled. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And here's a man who is listening intently from Paul. He is unable to move. He has a condition which makes him outsider, unable to, to participate. And he's actually a problem for society. And he's listening intently to Paul. He's searching for something outside of himself. He knows he doesn't have the answer. And so for us, as we come to faith in Christ, we, there comes a place in that time in our life we have to recognize we're not the answer. We don't have the mental facilities. We don't have the material abilities. We don't have the time or the energy to live a life worthy of heaven. We need outside intervention. We need a savior. And here this man is listening intently to Paul. And Paul notices him and sees, in a sense, the faith. And often in the New Testament, we see the illustration of faith uh, for healing physically also being um, true in the spiritual realm as well. It's kind of dovetailed together. And this guy who's listening intently to Paul, in a sense, is searching for help outside of himself. So the person who is outside of Jesus Christ has to recognize they need help outside of themselves. And so Paul gives him a command. He gives him an impossible command. He says, stand upright on your feet. That's one thing to say, right? If you've walked before and your bone has been reset, stand back up. But Paul didn't say stand back up to a man who had previously walked. He didn't say dust yourself off and let's get you rehabbed back to where you were. He's saying come and do something you've never done before. Walk. And here we see, in a sense, an illustration of a gospel announcement. We have the gospel, which we call good news, saying, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I think I've read this story, perhaps you have as well, of a Japanese soldier named Hiru Onoda. Somebody who knows how to say that better than me, let me know afterwards. But this man, after the war was over, he was stationed in the Philippines in one of the islands. Perhaps, again, you're familiar with this. But upon hearing that the war had ended, he refused to, resender, uh, to, to surrender because he had been given a command by his commanding officer as an intelligence officer to, to I can't talk for a little bit here, to conduct, is the word, raids and reconnaissance in the jungles. And that was his mission. And he was not going to stop. This man, though the war had formally ended, there, there was the signing of papers. The war ended in 45. This man finally surrendered in 1974. His former officer was finally brought to the island. And he finally came out with his sword and handed over and laid down his arms. The announcement had happened 29 years prior. He didn't believe it. And I wonder sometimes, too, for us, this, the war was over. But for Hiru, Onoda, it took him 29 years 
before he would lay down his arms. He refused to surrender. He continued to follow orders. In fact, he was, had been stealing from local farmers and actually had taken people's lives as well. And there's a problem as the Philippines thought of him one way and Japanese kind of hailed him as a hero, but that's beside the point. But getting back to what we're saying here, Paul looks at this lame man and says, stand up. And it's kind of like the war's over. And you have a choice at that point to do something, obey or reject. The Japanese soldier I reject that claim, and he continues to live on his own in the jungle. This lame man stands up because an outside force gives him power to his legs. He was healed physically and spiritually. It says in the latter part of that, he sprang up and began walking. His response was obedience to the message. And I think perhaps today, for all of us again today, obedience is not in fashion, generally speaking, in culture. But when we hear the good news, and Jesus calls out to us to look and live, to behold the Lamb of God, what he's saying to do is put your faith in someone who is outside of yourself. Rest in him. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and turn to him. And watch him make you whole. So gospel proclamation comes to us through this illustration of this lame healing of the lame man. And what happens here in this pagan town? There's no mention of a synagogue here. It doesn't mean there wasn't one here. But perhaps it's what we can tell is an entirely pagan audience here. In other words, all Gentiles in this situation. Again, they're operating on what they understand as culture. They see what's happening here. And they're like, the gods must be among us. And there's a story told, uh, recounted, a legend recounted by the Roman poet Ovid, who, who tells that the legend of Zeus and Hermes coming down to the area of Lystra there. They came down disguised as humans and were searching for a place to stay. But many people refused to offer them lodging. But finally, an old couple named Philemon and Bacchus welcomed them into their home and provided hospitality to Zeus and Hermes at great cost to themselves. To honor them, Zeus and Hermes turned their home into a temple with a golden roof and marble columns. Philemon and Bacchus were now considered priest and priestess, and eventually turned into trees. But as for those thousand or so homes that refused to host them, Zeus and Hermes destroyed their homes in judgment. So you know that old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You could almost see, perhaps, as they possibly knew that legend, that's what happened before, that's not going to happen again, it's time to throw a party. And they come out full bore, engaging the local priest, and they're ready to go big time. And Paul, this apparently doesn't happen like right here, right here, because it seems like Paul and, and, and Barnabas have gone on to something else. And as people respond and are excited about this, they get the idea, we don't want this to mess up on us. We better, we better throw a party here. We better celebrate. We better honor the gods who are once again among us. Let's, we don't want to happen what happened before. But here we see Paul and Barnabas refusing their worship. 
We see, as the audience respond here, a crippled man believing, a crowd desiring to worship Paul and Barnabas. But as we kind of jump the gun here and go, eventually they'll turn as Paul and Barnabas refuse their worship. And they go from wanting to throw and turn them into gods into dead men. So the third thing that comes to us as we see the response briefly is the gospel commitment, even in face now of the other extreme, which is initially rejection. This one is turn them into deity. But there's something that helps Paul and Barnabas navigate the ups and downs in life. It's a commitment to what God has said into the gospel message. So when they come up and say, we're ready to worship you, you know, I don't know, but it really feels good when people want to say you're really awesome. It really feels good when when they kind of said, I never heard it on that wise before. It really is good when people say, boy, I really did. And there's nothing wrong with people expressing thanks. I would just like to identify there probably is more desire in all of us to be worshipped than maybe we're ready to admit. And what Paul and Barnabas quickly are appalled by because they're driven by something bigger that helps them even understand gratitude and worship is, wait a minute, we're to direct people's hearts and minds to Jesus Christ alone. We can't afford to have any of this attention coming our direction. And they're appalled. We'd read it already. This can't happen. And so, again, their commitment to the gospel is not to receive worship of men, but for there to be worship of the true God. And so we get a window into a very brief message, perhaps the shortest one Paul ever preached, because it gets interrupted. And we go back into the text here. When Paul and Barnabas hear of it, they tear their garments, verse 14, and says, why are you doing these things in verse 15? We're just men. Remember, Peter had that same response earlier in Acts as well. You know, stand up. I, too, am a man. You know, I don't, I don't need worship. We're, we're just like you, same nature, and we bring you an announcement. We bring you good news. You should turn from vain things to, and there they come in, and they start defining through this who God is. Here's why you should worship the true God. Because he's alive. He's the real God. And by the way, he's a God who created all things. Your gods are doing all kinds of things. They come down, and if they don't like you, they'll burn up your houses. You have gods that are fickle and demand things of you, and you never know where you stand. This God, the true God, spoke life into you. He created you out of the dust of the ground. He created everything that is living. Oh, this same God who is alive, who is the creator of all things, in verse 16, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. This is a testimony to the patience and forbearance of God. How fickle and arbitrary and up and down foreign deities are. False gods, I should say. Because they are the figments of men's imaginations who are also up and down. But the true God is patient and forbearing. Oh, aren't we glad? And Paul is defending the character and explaining the character of a God who is worthy of worship. He's alive. He's the creator. He's patient with people. And, oh, yeah, you see all this stuff growing around you and the fact that you have food to eat and wine to drink and you're having success in life and you are satisfied. He's a generous God. False gods require more and more sacrifice. 
False God demand that you follow a regular schedule. False God demand and ask you to fall in the line and give and give and give. And you never know what you're getting. And here's a God who's given you food to eat, plenty to drink, so that you are satisfied and you don't know him yet. This is why I can't receive your worship, but this is why the true God deserves your worship. He's unlike anything you've seen so far. The response from that is as I re- is once they realized that they could not follow their ritual, they could not fulfill their desire to throw a party, they could not appease their gods, perhaps. That's why we're doing this. You're not going to let us do this. Then it goes from party to it's time to kill them. And they get a hold of it in a period of time. They get a hold of Paul and they stone him. And they drag him out of the city, leave him for dead. How quickly things can change. And by the way, that is true. When we serve the Lord, things can go from awesome to horrible with one phone call, can't they? Things change in a minute. And you're delighting in the goodness of God and and some sort of tragedy strikes some sort of reversal comes into your life. What gets us through all of that? What gets Paul through all of that? He sees something and believes something that connects all the dots. I would never again suggest to you that my life personally or yours is just going to be one gradual crescendo on the whiteboard during the Sunday school hour with the teenager last week or this week. I can't remember. I was like, here it is. Here's 0%. Here's 100%. It's kind of like this, right? Mm -hmm. It's, not, it's a difficult journey. But the only way to do that is to have a transcendent truth, a life-changing truth that helps me define and understand the lows and the highs. And Paul is driven by God's truth in the gospel, so much so that even as he personally experiences a miracle as his friends are standing around him outside the city, I don't know, ever thought about what that a movie portrayal of what that would be like? I mean, you read the text. Um, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I mean, there's some, perhaps some area for artistic license there. I'm not sure I want it. But, I mean, he's out there, and all it tells us, he's laying flat. And I don't know, the disciples are. And Paul gets up and says, wow, that was kind of bad. No, he didn't say that. We don't know. But he gets up and and... he's been stoned and he walks to Derby. The Lord healed him. And here's Paul. Round three, Derby's coming up. A little bit, if I'm cheating, I don't know what's happening next week. A little bit next week, we see that Paul isn't just about telling people the gospel message. He's also about training them. He's willing to stand the time and setting up structures in place so that churches are built. Because that's God's plan, the church of Jesus Christ. And so he's like, well, it's not working out in Lystra, so Derby's next. And evangelism and teaching and discipleship were at the core of everything that Paul did. So I ask you and me this morning, what is really driving you? What do your life choices say about you and candidly me? 
Perhaps a great place for you and me to start is to go back to the old, old story. The gospel message. To take some time to say that I was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of my works. I'm not boasting. I'll boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to meditate on it because what it is and what it does to people. Paul is a dramatic illustration of what it was like to be 100% one way and to turn and go 100% another way. Guarantee if you define it 100% anyway, but anybody who turns from darkness to light is turned around. Perhaps it would be helpful to understand it this way, that Paul's vocabulary changed from I do things to be accepted by God to through Christ, I am accepted by God, so I live for him. He's living from what has happened to him, not living by performance into hopes of something happening to him. So perhaps the best way for you and me to answer the question, what is driving you? Are you being driven by something that can handle the deepest woes and the the highest heights? Are you devastatingly low when life is down? There are times like that. That's why God gives us a church and family to come along us, to bear one another's burdens, we will have dark times. But are we elated only when life goes well and deflated when it doesn't go well? Perhaps as we study and consider the gospel again and anew, we'll see something that helps us make it through. Paul was driven by the gospel. You and I perhaps need to take some time to see where we're living for ourselves or where we're living for Christ. Maybe that's the best way to look at it. Not the distance, but the direction. What part of my lives, of my life can I see God is first place in? What parts of my life do I see? Actually, Daryl still got this one carved out for him Saturdays one to five, whatever. Because God wants all of us. God gave all to us. And God wants to give us the way to navigate life and ministry by his gospel message. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what we have seen in these few verses today. Thank you that the message is the same. The methods can change. Locations change. Acceptance and rejection is to be expected. But I pray, God, as need be, we would analyze, consider our lives to see what is really driving our life. What are we really motivated by? What are our, really our core values? What would we give up time and sleep for? What are we willing to give our lives for? And we thank you, Lord, that you take all of that and turn our eyes to your own earthly journey and your own life. And you say, I lived and died and rose again for you. May that truth help us understand a little bit of the love that you have for all people. And wherever we're at today, perhaps some are wrestling with whether I should come to faith in this one. Others, maybe some of us distracted. Others may be hurt and confused. May we see that you are a good shepherd that has given his life for the sheep and desire all of us to be in fellowship with him through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.